shooting out sparks over 38 states, the Canadian plains, and the tequila fields of Mexico. A program most deserving of a grand introduction. The Nocturnal Journal. The talk of the town. WGN Radio 720. With your guide, Dave Hoekstra. Daytime turns me off and I don't need maybe. Ro, what night is it? Is it Friday night or Saturday night? I think it's Friday. Yeah, we got a special uh, Friday night version of the Nocturnal Journal. Thanks for joining us. Uh, two hours. In the next hour, we're going to talk about uh, White Sox parks. Amazing vendors. I bet you guys are all White Sox fans. You bet. Yeah, you. yeah. yeah. So we've, we're going to talk about the history of the actually the old Comiskey vendors a lot. We're going to talk about uh, Go RVing and uh, small houses, tiny houses. In the studio for the first segment. And thank you, all you guys, for, for coming down tonight. Um, we're going to pay tribute. You, I only met her a couple times when I did a story on her, but Wanda Kurek, the proprietor of Stanley's, 43rd and Ashland in Back of the Yards. And she passed away June 18th, right, at age 95. So we want to talk about the history of the tavern. In the studio, we have... Why don't you guys just introduce yourself? And uh, we'll start with the Back of the Yards and go specific. But Hi. Dominic? I'm Dominic Pasiga from... Emeritus professor at Columbia College. And you wrote, virtual reference here, Slaughterhouse, right. Chicago Union Stockyard and the wor World It Made. Mm -hmm. University of Chicago Press? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Walter? Uh, I'm Walt Keurig, and I'm proud to say that I'm Wanda's nephew. Okay. Uh, my name is Ken Motti. Uh, they jokingly refer to me as the mayor of Rockabilly uh, in the uh, music scene in Chicago. And I was lucky enough to be introduced to Stanley's Bar by the young man sitting next to me. And I'm Steve Mandel, um, a fan of all things old about Chicago. And this That's why you're on this show. <laughs> you, you, this is your second visit to see yes. us. We talked about the Bucket of Sun. So um, let's just talk about, like I said in the general, let's talk about the history of the Union Stockyard, Dominic, and, and you know the ebbs and flows, how it started, how it wound down when Wanda was there. I want to tell the listeners how important it was and how you know, Wanda's bar played into it. Sure. The Union Stockyard opened on Christmas Day, 1865. What better way to celebrate Christ's birthday but to open a livestock market? Uh, and it lasted till um, the, the, the first non-market day was August 1st, 1971. So almost 106 years. Uh, and it started uh, almost immediately as a, as a tourist attraction and as a, as a center of the meat and packing industry. Uh, most of the packers had been located in Bridgeport along the south branch of the river, but by 1870-75 they began to move in west of the stockyards. Uh, and as they moved in west of the stockyards, they filled in the area up to Ashland Avenue. So it was the square mile that people talked about. Tom Wilson, who owned Wilson Meatpacking, who I understand was a customer at uh, Stanley's periodically, uh, he would refer to the, the square mile almost in a loving kind of way. Yeah. Uh, he made his fortune there. He ran Nelson Morris Company, and then he, he owned Wilson Meatpacking. It peaked uh, at World War I. There were about 50,000 people working in the stockyards at the time. And then in the 1920s, it slowly went into decline in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Uh, it peaked again during World War II, but after World War II, you could see a precipitous decline. From 1893 to 1933, there were never fewer than 13 million head of livestock a year in the stockyards. Twice it peaked at over 18 million. Uh, so the Tribune. Uh, called it uh, uh, organized chaos. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, because if you didn't know where you were going, you got lost in the pens real easily. Yeah. 
Um, after the war, the truck and the interstate system sure. began to have an impact, and the Packers began to buy more and more direct from farmers, and so the stockyards went into decline. So I worked there from 1969 to 1971. At that point, even that last year, I believe we had three-quarters of a million head of livestock. What did you do there? I was a livestock handler mm-hmm. and then later a security guard. A security guard? Yeah. yeah. My dad worked there. He began his career at Swift and Company there, and he was like a messenger boy. This had to be like in the 30s. And, mm-hmm. But anyway, he talked, you always talked about how it was a city within a city. Oh, I mean, yeah. they had a radio station. and Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. News, did yeah. they have a newspaper? And, oh, yeah, they had the Drover's Journal. Yeah. Uh, the Drover's Journal was published there. They had restaurants. They had a hotel, of course, the Stockyard Inn. Yeah, right. Before that, known as the Transit House. Uh, WGN broadcast uh, the Farm Report at noon uh, mm-hmm. from the uh, auditorium of the uh, Livestock Exchange Building. Uh, yeah, we had at one point there were a hundred security guards for the stockyards. Uh, the The livestock market itself, not counting the packing houses, covered 475 acres. You had a hog house at one point could hold over 200,000 hogs, a sheep house that could hold 100,000 sheep, and the cattle pens uh, just seemed to go on forever. Built in a kind of a swamp. I mean, everybody yeah. talks about, we, we talked about this with Wanda once, right. and my dad used to talk about just the smell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, describe the smell. Oh, well, the smell. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up with the smell. I, yeah. I grew up at 46th in Wood Street, um, and uh, uh, it didn't mean anything to me. It was the way everything smelled. But one time when I, I was an altar boy at Sacred Heart Parish, where Wanda was a parishioner as well, and uh, they took us out to a uh, seminary someplace and out in the country. And I said, what is that smell? It's terrible. What is that smell? <laughs> it was fresh air. <laughs> I got sick. <laughs> so, so, Walter, talk a little bit about the history of, of the bar. I mean, it goes back, the first location was like 1924? 1924. Yeah. Uh, my uh, grandfather was the classic American immigrant. Uh, I think the story of Wanda and the saloon is pretty much the american story he worked in the uh stockyards in chicago as he was a foreman he started his first location in uh, 1924 uh located approximately 41st in ashland in a rented location and basically it was uh beer and alcohol and uh food was really given away uh as an inducement for customers to come in and stop by uh, and then as years gone by, the food became a, a bigger component of the business. But basically, uh, my grandfather and my grandmother started with nothing, rented a location, then a second location on uh, 1615 West 43rd Street, right on the alley. That's still a saloon today. Then they moved to 43rd uh, in Ashland on the uh, south side of the street, which is now a Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, they saved their money and purchased the corner property on 43rd National on the northwest corner mm-hmm. and moved into that location in 1935. 1935. And it's, uh, it was always a family business. Everyone in the family uh, worked in the business. My father was a lawyer, but he tended bar. My aunts tended bar. My brother, uh, I'm sorry, my uncle tended bar. I tended bar when I was in college and just a family business. How did you see the neighborhood change? I don't, I don't know how roughly how old are you? Uh, I am uh, 64 years 64 old. 64 years old. So how did you see, when you go there to work, how did you see the neighborhood? Well, when I, uh, my recollection of the stockyards when I was uh, a child were basically the animal pens and mm-hmm. many of the buildings, darlings, and so forth, uh, but fairly dormant. All the pens were empty. Uh, and then over the course of time, that's changed into an industrial park. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the neighborhood has changed. It's just, a, it's just a different community today, same type of community hard-working family people uh, and um, 
you know, life goes on. And um, how many people from the family work there? Well, uh, my uh, Wanda had uh, four siblings, so all five of uh, the children worked in the business. Uh, I've worked in the business on the next generation. I have a cousin who's also worked in the business, and I have a sister who's worked in the business as well. So I guess that would be a total of uh, eight of us. Okay, we're going to take a break um, here, and then we're going to come back, and I'm going to talk about Wanda a little bit more specifically in the next generation. So don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Marion Lush. Wanda told me she liked Marion Lush. That's why I played that. Thanks. Is that that's on the jukebox there, right? It is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you guys, uh, Ken and uh, Steve, I want to talk about the next generation. How did you? How did you guys find it? Um, you know, there's a lot of. Well, that's my next question. A lot of bars that get a, a, a rebirth with an, another generation. I don't know if that's happening at Stanley's, but how did you guys find the place? Well, I found Steve, I, I found it through you know mutual friend of ours, uh, Joe Brill, who grew up in the uh, neighborhood, and uh, we have a fascination uh, with all kinds of disappearing Chicago old bars and restaurants that are going away that aren't you're not going to be able to replace, like Marie's Riptide Lounge yeah. and Bucket of Suds, and some of these. You know, neighborhood bars are just disappearing in Chicago. And uh, Joe uh, and I used to hang out at a bar called Bucket of Suds years ago. And uh, he had mentioned about five or six years ago, uh, asked if I'd ever uh, been to Stanley's. And uh, he said, Wanda's going to be 90 years old. You know, you should go down there and check it out. And I went down there for the first time for lunch. I got the Polish plate. The food was excellent. Wanda couldn't have been nicer and more friendly. And uh, I just fell in love with the place. So then you bring Ken? I brought Ken. So then Ken, you, Steve brings you there. Well, the fact of the matter is I, I was not the first member of my family to end up in the back of the yards in that neighborhood i'm originally from southeastern iowa just like my dad my grandfather everybody were all farmers in 1937 when my father was 19 years old he came with a load of livestock from southeastern iowa to the stockyards and wandered through that neighborhood and he was proud of the fact that he was there for like a day and a half spent a total of two dollars yeah uh he actually went up and saw jim pool broadcast from the stockyards and he went to the uh stockyards inn so years later, um, Steve, who has always been my entertainment and nightlife guru since I moved to Chicago in the mid-80s, Steve is the man who first took me to the Stay Out All Night Discotheque in Stone Park. Yeah, I, I was there once or twice. <laughs> Performing on a Sunday night was Jeff Garland. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that was a few years ago. So like like steve said about joe brill saying hey you've got to come to stanley's steve did the exact same thing with me and how long ago was that maybe five maybe six years ago the first night that steve brought me there my first thought was i've got to bring my wife mary here so the very next night we loaded up the car we went to stanley's the minute my wife walked in the door she said we're having our wedding anniversary our 20th wedding anniversary party here at this bar 
and that was about a year and a half away, and our friends couldn't have been happier. We had a wonderful time there. Walter and Dominic, describe the vibe there. I know Dominic, you were there and stuff. I mean, what makes it? Why? Why? Why are these guys attracted to it so much? What makes it so unique? Uh, talk about the house drinks, uh, the food. I mean, just create a scene for the listeners. Walter, well, I think the um, one of the unique things of the uh, of the bar uh, had always been that essentially whatever the food was that was served in the bar was really the same food that my family. Ah. Uh, ate. So there was absolutely no different. Uh, so whatever quality of food, you know, we would serve out at really a holiday meal or a uh, normal day meal was a typical lunch fare at the bar. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much a casual environment. I would say there were, generally speaking, uh, two distinct groups of customers, customers that uh, were working men that would stop in for short periods of time, and there were people that were more of uh, the community that would stay longer, uh, such as Ken, uh, and come and visit and that type of thing. Uh, and it was just a... Uh, casual environment it still is a casual environment uh the missing element of course is that wanda would uh, share her free advice with <laughs> the customers uh, yeah. oftentimes unvarnished advice yeah. she would uh, always ask me if i was keeping busy at work yeah uh, she always wanted to know how things were going at my job yeah she was and uh her tagline saying that she would sell tell most customers she'd tell people to behave <laughs> yeah right, right. Yeah. Yeah. you know you hit on something steve um you, you mentioned marie's riptide you know marie i think of uh, we've had we've talked about phyllis's musical you know the phyllis isn't there that much but these women really have a they really had a, a face of the tavern i mean it was wanda was stanley's there right oh, absolutely yeah. yeah uh she ran the business with her brother uh, beginning in the late 50s and then her brother my uncle Ted passed away in 1983 and then at that point forward the business really transformed into her business uh, and she was the face of Stanley's it was really really in modern days more of Wanda's business than it was my grandfather Stanley yeah. no doubt about that she was the main attraction yeah you know I mean she uh, lit the place up when she walked out of that back room out of that kitchen you know and everybody said hey Wanda you know uh, and she would sit down and talk with you for hours actually at, at a time yeah. she would she yeah. my wife and I would go there for lunch and we would take along my mother-in-law who is in her mid-80s and she and Wanda hit it off like like long-lost family members they would sit and talk for hours while we had lunch mm-hmm. yeah 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 uh, music on the jukebox we heard some music. of it we have a uh, a jukebox that is a 1953 rockola jukebox wow. 120 records uh there's ample supply behind what's on uh, the machine today and the family bought it new and works today and we expect it to be working tomorrow as well. Is it Ten true? cents a song, uh, three for a quarter, and a nice selection of poultry music. Exactly. <laughs> and the other, the thing that I really like about Stanley's is there's an old saying in the bar game, and that is if you walk past a bar on the streets and you can't see in the windows, they don't want you to see in the windows. <laughs> well, Stanley's, it's such a well-lit room. When you're there in the daytime, it's just there's just a beautiful, warm brown gold glow to it because there are windows that let in the light it's it's a warm and inviting atmosphere yeah. it's not some grubby bar it's yeah. Yeah. it's what you want it to be it's i've always said that it seems like it wouldn't be that difficult to run a bar what do you need you need a room you need a bar you need some liquor well it's a lot more complicated than that but wanda walter everybody in your family your grandfather figured it out 
back in the 20s and it still works no and let me just comment that i i think my if my aunt were here today she would uh she would tip her hat to all the other families proud of chicago families particularly some of the south side families the Scheller family the right. Schmidt family mm-hmm. people who have built and maintained uh saloon businesses and it's no easy business uh you know, a simple matter is you're on your feet all day long, and that food has to be cooked, and the the shells have to be stocked, and it's uh, it's certainly not an easy thing to do. Do you guys have any idea? I mean, they always said it was one. Of the, I know Schaller's is closed, and that had a very old liquor license. Was it one or two or three? I don't know where the Berghoff sits and all the that. The Berghoff is one. Yeah, really. Yeah. But I wouldn't yeah. call the Berghoff a slip. But <laughs> yeah. um, I'm with you, Dave. Yeah. I'm completely with you on that. One. Um, but do you know how old the liquor license was? Is it Stanley's? Yeah, I would say that. Well, first of all, our, our first liquor license was 1920. Um, it's a hard thing to measure, but I think it would be fair to say that we're probably uh, one of a handful of Chicago uh, liquor licenses that are still run and maintained by the same original founding family. Wow. Uh, I think it's fair to say that possibly with the exception of Berghoff on the entire south side of Chicago, we would be the oldest saloon in the city. Um and as I say, we uh, we certainly respect everyone else in this business because anyone who's been in the game for a long, long time has worked very, very hard. Outside of Joe Brill, have you had any celebrity uh, customers and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, Ken, well, okay. Ken Motti, well, the mayor of Rockville, and Steve Mandel <laughs> drink their regular. I mean, any politicians come in? Yeah, uh, we've had a number of politicians, yeah. and uh, you know, the mayors have been in. All the mayors. Uh, not all, but yeah. we've had a couple. And, uh, the Southside mayors. Yeah, Southside <laughs> mayors and, and aldermen. And, uh, I think the funniest thing is is that we've had uh, so many uh, large and huge and powerful men uh, physically, and everyone to a person would say to Wanda, if you need anything, just give me a call. I'll, I'll take care of the problem for you. So we, we look at that with some admiration. Yeah. You know, Stanley's was part of a whole ring of taverns. Yeah, right. On Avenue. National, it's called Whiskey, Whiskey Row. Whiskey Row, yeah. And at one point, there were over 40 taverns on National Avenue at, the, at that location. So it was a tough business to make, uh, you know, to, to get enough men in to keep it going and things like that. They often cash checks right. uh, yeah. from the uh, packing houses uh, or from the stockyard company. Uh, and uh, it was a way stop on a way home. It was also a stop for lunch because a lot of the packing houses originally didn't have uh, cafeterias. So they'd go out and they'd stop at the bars. There'd be a hot plate, uh, not a hot plate, but a steam table, and you'd eat for free if you had a shot and a beer. Uh, and Stanley's walked right into that and uh, and is the last bar on Whiskey Row. Yeah, and I would say on the food, uh, probably for the... Uh the gosh, the the first many years of the business, the food the food was really a giveaway. The food was sure. just for the convenience mm-hmm. of the customers. The customers came in to drink, and uh, my grandmother would make food and put it out free of charge, just as a, a nicety to the yeah. customers. Now um, we're going to take a break for the news here in a minute, but people would want to know what's the future. It's it's open again. It's open. Uh, the the business uh, is open. Uh, we uh, anticipate being open and. Uh, Possibly with the exception of Wanda, uh, it's a family business, and the family's no interest in really doing anything but moving forward. Uh, give the address again. It's uh, 4258 South Ashland. It's on the northwest corner of 43rd Street and Ashland, right across from the main entrance to the Chicago Stockyards. And uh, what is it? What are the hours? Did you tell me last call? Was last it seven? Call, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if this uh, is still the case, going to be the case, but last call was around 7, 7.30 p.m. Yeah, Wanda ran the business uh, uh, from 11 in the morning uh, till uh, 8 in the evening. 
Uh, but those hours may may change uh, in days to come. I'm looking for a side job as a bartender. <laughs> come on down. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're gonna take a break. You guys want to hang around a little bit? I want to. I want to get a little bit more into Wanda. And, um, okay. Sure. So yeah. So we'll be back with more of a, a tribute to Stanley's on WGN after this. Oh, that it's worth every treasure on earth to be young at heart. For as rich as you are. It's much better by far to be young at heart. And if- Welcome back to uh, Nocturnal Journal on WGN, and we're uh, paying tribute to Wanda Kurek, who passed away June 18th at the age of 95, 95. proprietor of Stanley's. She, um, well, while we played that song, you told me that was her first rock, con- <laughs> rock concert. <laughs> yeah, she saw Frank Sinatra live when yeah. she was a teenager. And that was her first rock concert. It was. She missed a lot. Did she? I asked her once if she saw the Beatles at the International Amphitheater. I don't think that was a part uh, of The Beatles were not quite her style. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, talk about, uh, people may not know about her background in fashion. Uh, she graduated the Vogue School of Fashion. And you, I didn't know this till uh, last week. She wants to own over 100 McCall's dress patterns. So right, talk her, about that. That's where her sense of style came from, right? Yeah, her passion really was... Um, dressmaking, dress design. She graduated high school uh, in the height of World War II, and that would have been 1942, and uh, began the uh, Vogue Chicago School of Fashion, uh, but then quickly uh, quickly ended that simply because she was called back to work in the family business since her brothers were in the war. And then in the 50s, she uh, uh, purchased the dress shop on uh, 75th and Loomis and had a small dress shop uh, for three or four years, and then would call back from that because, again, her father took ill, and she went back into the bar business. But that was really her passion. She uh, she made many outfits, uh, did design many clothes. Uh, she was really fantastic with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that's why Wanda liked me and could tolerate me because I would always show up. I tend to wear a shirt and necktie no matter what I do. You're dressed up here. Well... <laughs> Like Steve said, I'm dressed for radio. Yeah, right. My heroes in fashion were Commissioner Gordon on the Batman TV series and Eddie Albert on Green Acres. <laughs> yeah. I said, that's how you do it. That's how you put on your stump grubbing suit. So um, you would come to the bar dressed up? Yeah. I would come there straight from work. Uh, I work in the western suburbs, and I found out that at like 2.30 in the afternoon on a Thursday, I could make it from the western suburbs to Stanley's in 45 minutes. Uh-huh. I would jam, and I would get there, and Wanda was always ha- – she was happy to see every person that walked into that bar. She really was, and she made you feel so welcome, and just seeing her little head peeking up over the bar, because she was a small woman – very short, yes. Mm-hmm. Very yeah, small, very, yeah. but uh, she she filled that room with her personality. Uh, you you told me you always felt like you belonged. That was a common I, theme. There, I really yeah. did. Being like I said, coming to Chicago from southeastern Iowa and being a farm kid, you always kind of have a chip on your shoulder about oh, here I am in the big town. But it was like finally coming to Stanley's with my wife, with my friend Steve. I really, really, after all these years living in Chicago, I felt like. I belong here. Um, My wife and I, the very first uh, funeral that we ever attended for one of the barkeepers that we ever went to was Paul Fong, who was the owner-operator of uh, Chef Shangri-La in North Riverside. We went to his visitation because my in-laws were personal friends with Paul and his wife, Susie. So um, when Wanda passed away and I got a personal text from Rich, one of the bartenders there, that just 
that was just it. And then going to the visitation, I felt like, yeah, this is this was a very special woman. She was a very, very special person, a cornerstone of Chicago. Um, Dominic, when when people went went there and talked to Wanda and you're a historian, um, what's lost when this when this oral history goes away? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Some of us try to preserve that oral history, (laughs) but um, uh, a lot of us lost. There's a Wanda was a character. Uh, Chicago used to be a city of characters. There was a lot of people who were, you know, a little on edge or a little off edge or a little roundabout. And Wanda was one of those people, and she was fantastic. Her heart was just, uh, you know, open to everybody. Uh, she was a, a, a great person, um, but she was a character, and she, I, 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 she drew people into that bar. I mean, she drew me in. Uh, you know, my my family grew up around the corner from there, uh-huh. and. Um, uh, knew a lot of the pe- same people and went to the same church when when I was younger before it closed, Sacred Heart, um, and people were just drawn to that place. Yeah. Uh, it was a it was a, a good respectable bar on Whiskey Row. Whiskey uh, Row. Right. Wanda really liked when Dominic came in because they were able to talk about the neighborhood. They both knew the same families, but yeah. what was really unique is that uh, virtually everyone Dominic knew, Wanda knew that person's grandparents or parents. And right. You Which talk about Whiskey one. Row. Yeah. Uh, how many women had a face on Whiskey Row? I mean, is, was this rare that Wanda was was? I, I think it was. It was uh, uh, n- not as rare as you might think. There uh-huh. were several bars close several. by that several. were run by women. Um, maybe in the early days, it was mostly a male institution. Let's see, before World War One, World War Two, uh, but uh, it, it it changed over time. You know, Whiskey Row was one of those places. Um, uh, that uh, uh, people in the neighborhood, there were two kinds of taverns in, 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 in back of the yards. There were the taverns on Whiskey Row, which anybody could go to, black, white, Hispanic, whatever. And you'll see the same mix today at Stanley's. Then there were the bars on the inside of the community. Every, there were about three bars per block in back of the yards. I think on my block there were five. <laughs> so that's a lot of bars per block. But those places were more closed off. It was a Lithuanian bar. You didn't go in if you were Polish. You weren't <laughs> didn't go into German. If you were German, you didn't go into a Polish bar. If you, oh, yeah. you know these were very. But not on Whiskey Row. Whiskey Row was open to we, everybody. Uh, we've always had an eclectic mix of customers. Yeah. Proud to say that we still do. Mm-hmm. If anything, Wanda uh, embraced diversity in the sense that when uh, she rolled up her wet towel and snapped it in your face, you know <laughs> you you knew it was time to leave. Whether you know whatever planet you were born on. <laughs> and every time every time I go to the bar. I end up having a conversation with someone at the bar that I would not have met otherwise at any other place in my life. They say that in your life you have your home, your job, and then you need that third place. Third place, yeah. And Stanley's is absolutely third place. I have met one of my favorite people that I met there was a man uh, who had uh, had a degree from an Ivy League school out east, and he was working here for one of the recycling companies, not as an executive, as a guy on the truck. Yeah. There's a story yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it was, it's always been an interesting place. And Wanda would talk to me in Polish too, which was Absolutely. kind of kind of kind of fun for both of us. And uh, but you're right about that that clot. She could she could hit you with it. I, I remember somebody saying, Wanda, you know, I don't like liver. She said, Go to the there's the door. <laughs> Around the corner is, is McDonald's. Go eat there. <laughs> I mean, she, yeah, she told she, it like it was. She did. And credit where credit is due to Dominic, you appear in a documentary about the Polish in Chicago, and you were interviewed 
sitting at the bar at Stanley's. Actually, uh, the, the documentary, a couple of documentaries I've been in, the documentary you're talking about was called The South Side, and that's with Jeffrey Barron. He brought me in there oh. uh, five, six years ago, yeah, and yeah. we sat there and, uh, and, and talked with Wanda, et cetera. It was, it was great fun. Now, I had known Wanda before, but it was at that point that I started coming in regular into the bar. Okay, uh, in the time we have left, I want to go around the table and talk about your projects uh, outside of uh, going to Stanley's. So, uh, you got a book coming out, Dominic? Yeah, I do. In the fall, it's called American Warsaw, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Polish Chicago. It's University of Chicago Press. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, you'll uh, be busy, right? We're busy. Uh, the uh, The business is open, and uh, we're looking forward to welcome back all of our friends from over the years. Are uh, you going to make any changes? You wouldn't tell me if you are. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're trying to improve our parking situation, oh, you are? which really? is a little tight. Uh, but other than that... Uh, I think the same room will be the same. I kind of lost track there. What time is last call? Well, it was 8 p.m. We're open a little later now, but that's all now in the process of being redefined in a sense. Okay. Ken Motti. Oh, I'm the busiest man in pretend show business. Gin Palace Jesters. I play in a traditional and original country and western band called the Gin Palace Jesters. You can find us on uh, Facebook, gin-palace-jesters. And I'm also involved in a show that can be seen on YouTube that's called the Chicago Vintage Show that is sort of like the Tonight Show, um, but with all rockabilly and tattoo stuff and uh, vintage and swing dance stuff. And I get to play Johnny Carson. <laughs> it's it's the most fun I've had in my show business career, and I am making air quotes with my fingers. Okay. Steve Mendel, what are you up to? I'm going to continue exploring, looking for lot, um, lots of gems in places like uh, Stanley's across the city, and help spread the word. What do you? Uh, last question. What do you learn when you go to these places? The sense of history. I mean, that's that's real important to you. Yeah, I you know because I just love. I don't like where we're heading. I don't like uh, the music. You know, every yeah, I sound old, but uh, <laughs> you kids with I, your live yeah, music I, and you are old. Yeah, I, kinda, I, I just not a fan of what's going on now, and I like this old history, and I like talking to these people. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Dano, who owned Bucket of Suds, if he were alive today, he'd be 103 years old, mm-hmm. and uh, just learned so much history from him about the city and how things were. Um, you know what? They have they have time for you. I used to right. That's they right. They there and they like. And one of the things that I noticed about uh, whether it was um, Marie or Wanda or Joe Dano is that none of these people wanted to just stay at home and sit and watch TV. Being around all these people coming in, and especially younger people, all these people could have been my grandparents. And they enjoyed talking mm-hmm. with people. And I think if they didn't have that every day and just sat in a chair, they probably wouldn't have lived as long as they did. And I think it, not necessarily the bar business itself, but just talking with people and being around and sharing their knowledge that there were people that wanted to. Wa- you know, Wanda people. once told me, she said, what am I going to do, S- sit and look at the park? I right. want to talk to people. I used to right. say to I used to say to Wanda, I wasted the first fifty two years of my life not coming to Stanley's. I'm making up for lost time. Uh, good for you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, it's a, it's a great place. Shout out the address again, Wally. Four two five eight South Ashland Avenue, Chicago. Thanks so and, much, Dave. And she'll still it. have bear game. You'll still have bear games on Sunday. We'll have it all. She loved that. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank and you. Uh, thank we'll you. be back with more Nocturnal Journal after this. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal. And on the phone we have John. Fontaine, Director of Consumer Launch for Reed 
exhibitions, and he's overseeing the outside experience at Chicago in Chicago that uh, goes up July 13th and 14th. Are you there, John? I am. How are you? Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. So tell us uh, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the outside uh, outside experience. Is this the first one here in Chicago? This is the first one. So outside experience really is a celebration of the culture and lifestyle of outdoor and adventure sports, uh, July 13th and 14th over at McCormick Place in the uh, Lakeside Center building. And we go Saturday 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. and Sunday 10 to 5 and uh, let's let's break it down. Um, sure. Outside active lifestyle event, brand. I'm interested. Uh, it's kind of presented. Some stuff is presented by Go RVing. So talk about all the components of this. Certainly. So yeah, Outside Magazine right. is the kind of the original uh, magazine for the outdoor and adventure space. Uh, it actually was founded in Chicago, so that's a little bit of history there with the uh, with the brand and the show. Uh, so the show will be actually broken up into twelve different adventure zones that really cover. Pretty much everything you see in the magazine, our Adventure Vehicle Zone, which is uh, sponsored by our presenting sponsor, Go RVing, will have a number of different adventure vehicles. I'm not talking the big motorhomes, but really cool, towable, lightweight stuff, van life, that type of thing. Uh, we've got a running zone for trail running sponsored by Solomon. We hit the water, both inside and outside. We'll have a water zone inside with a fly casting tank from Orvis, and then we'll be paddling at 31st Street Harbor with a number of brands there, including Hobie and L.L. Bean. Uh, we've got an indoor climbing uh, zone with a climbing wall of eight lanes on it, a trail zone for kind of like hiking and camping, a winter zone, adventure travel, uh, biking with a really neat e-bike demo course with two ramps, a kind of wellness and lifestyle zone we call Live Well with a fitness demo stage, uh, camping zone, a pet zone with some dog adoptions from uh, one of the local rescues in town, oh, one tail nice. at a time. Yeah, and then our backyard zone, which will host a five thousand dollar guaranteed purse cornhole tournament. Oh wow! Well, you got a lot, you got a lot going on there. Um, talk about some of these things. Uh, running zone. So, what happens there when people check out the running zone? What What do you do? So, we've actually built out a indoor trail running trail, complete with rocks, logs, mulch, dirt. You name it, elevation gains and all. So people will be able to try the newest Solomon Supercross trail shoes and their Speedcross 5. Uh, try them on right there, have their gait analyzed, take a little clinic class in how to trail run, and then strap on those new Supercross and take them for a spin. And something like the Winter Zone, which uh, we get a lot of that anyway in Chicago. You've got what happens at the Winter Zone, and I, I see here there's a tin cup whiskey Lodge? Uh, actually, actually, we're we're just going with Stranahan. So Stranahan's whiskey and tin cup are are, are, are you know companies under one brand, but it's just going to be Stranahan's at the show. Our uh, winter zone will have a few kind of uh, smaller outdoor brands, winter brands, including one local Viking Ski Shop. Um, but Stranahan's will be there with some whiskey sampling and their really cool airstream set up right at the entrance to the show. Um, and you mentioned van life. I, I talked to you briefly this morning. I mean, we did, yeah. I did a book on uh, camper vans and driving around the country in a camper van, and it's it's really, really exploding with a younger demographic. I mean, and there's people with you know doing telecommuting. I, I, I ran into a couple in Key West, and they they were from the Boston area, and they just spent the you know the, the winter in Key West working and stuff. Talk about that, how that's trending up with uh, a, a younger audience, maybe retirees too. Yeah, well, the real focus for Go RVing, which is the marketing arm of the Recreational Vehicle Industry Association, is to target the, the millennial crowd. 
with these kind of lighter weight vehicles, smaller vehicles, less expensive vehicles, obviously conversion vans are a big part of that. If you follow Instagram, you, you know it's a thing. Uh, and it's it's really it's a remarkable new phenomenon, and you know a lot of a lot of the biggest adventurers think Alex Honnold from Free Solo. He you know lives in a van half the year, uh, and is able to travel around the country and, and climb all over. So we're excited to see some of the stuff that comes from Go RVing, and, and including having a tiny house in there, which is is really cool. Yeah, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get to the tiny houses in, in, cool. in, a, in a little bit. Uh, talk about teardrop trailers. For the listeners who don't teardrops. know, I think we've got a few teardrops on site. So a teardrop is really a vintage style trailer. They've been, you know, remade in a lighter fiberglass, uh, very small interior, just, you know, sleeping quarters. And the back opens up like a clamshell to reveal a kitchen. But you can tow it with a Mini Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. And you and those are you see you're seeing more and more of those around, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there a website where people can uh, find out more information? What are the hours um, for this? Yeah, certainly. It uh, is outsideexperienceshow.com is the website. And all the information's there, including links for tickets. Uh, and then, obviously, we have our, our social handles as well. And are you on site at these? I, mean, I, I assume you've done them in other, other cities. Yeah, no, this, yep, we uh, we work for a company called Reed Exhibitions, so in Chicago, uh, C2E2, uh, the big comic and entertainment expo, is, is an event we do, so I'm really familiar with the city. Um, we run about 50 events in the U.S. alone, uh, but this is the first for Outside and Reed as a partnership for Outside Experience Show. I mean, have you done other outside? My question would be, like, what kind of questions do people have? Are there, are there, are there things they ask about? You know, they're going to want to know what's going on, what they can do. Uh, you know, it's a very family-friendly event, so we've got everything for, you know, kids two and up. Uh, and, and I say kids because the adults are kids, too, with this. You know, the climbing wall will be there. People can climb with our friends from Brooklyn Boulders out of Chicago. They're going to be running the climbing wall. We've actually got a rappelling station set up. Uh, so you'll be able to rappel off the patio at Lakeside Center down to the Lakeside Trail right below it. Uh, obviously the cornhole tournament, and when the tournament's not going, it's open cornhole play, fly casting, clinics, and demos. So if you've never tried fly casting, you can try that. Our e-bike course, we've got a kids' bike demo area with batch bicycles. And I think the most fun for the kids will be the Kids' Adventure Zone, where we'll have ninja courses, slack line, zip line, all, all for the kids to uh, really enjoy. And I think the main highlight really is uh, our Yeti main stage, sponsored by our friends at Yeti. We built out a, a round stage in the center of the show floor to really mimic sitting around a campfire and telling stories. So we've got programming on that stage all day long, and Saturday afternoon we actually have a concert uh, from a band out of Missouri, actually named after a state park in Missouri called Ha Ha Tonka. So they go on oh, in the early afternoon. Yeah. yeah. So they'll be they'll be on site on Saturday afternoon, kicking off probably about four fifteen, four thirty, and opening for them we've got another Chicago native group, uh, Tree Hugger Comedy. Uh, so they'll be doing some of their outdoor comedy as an opening act for the band. How'd you find these bands? Uh, you know, the band thing, we went through a few. Uh, we were searching around for some local bands, Midwest bands. We had one lined up, ready to go. But turns out that the Sunday of our show, one of the band members is getting married. So so we uh, we went with Ha Ha Tonka. Well, we're excited to have them. You know, one of their, one of their main videos is is the whole band on a river flotilla of rafts with a bunch of people hanging out in the in the outdoors so it makes perfect sense 
It is the Outside Experience, uh, July 13th and 14th at the McCormick Plake Place Lakeside Center. Um, before we let you go, talk about the tiny house and simple living jamboree. Now, will that be in Austin? So actually, the Tiny House Simple Living Jamboree is a show we ran for a couple of years. Um, we actually, as a consumer show where people can just come to our houses, it doesn't really exist anymore. We've actually oh, okay. moved it into a uh, into our national hardware show portfolio, which is more on the trade side. You know, a lot of the builders in that growing industry, uh, there's a lot of education that happens. And also for the builders, it's kind of one-stop shopping to meet with all their suppliers. But for a couple of years, we did run that event in Texas. We had over 65 different tiny houses last year in Austin. Uh, they're real neat, and we're excited to have one this year as well. So if you haven't seen a tiny house, but you've seen them on TV, this is a perfect opportunity to come down and tour a tiny house and see it if it would work for you. Uh, so there will be one at the outside experience. Be yes, there will be. Yes, sir. Yep. I saw. I just saw a thing uh, in my feed this week about Amazon selling tiny houses. <laughs> build, oh, yeah. build, have you, oh, did yeah. you see that? Build it yourself kits starting at just over five thousand dollars. You can build one in two oh, days. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon, you know. And, and more and more municipalities are starting to accept them as dwellings. Uh, you know, California just revised some laws as accessory dwelling units for like backyard granny flats and, and rental properties. So I, I think you're going to continue to see growth in that, especially on kind of the modular and manufactured, small structured size. Describe a tiny house for listeners who may not know what we're talking about. So typically, you know, the TV version is a uh, on a trailer that's anywhere from 18 to 36 feet long, sometimes with a gooseneck. So they have a footprint of anywhere from, you know, call it 180 to 300 and some odd square feet. There are something called a park model home, which you typically yeah. find in like RV parks that are 400 square feet. Um, you know, they could be on foundations. They could be on wheels and movable. Uh, now container storage containers are turned into homes. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's really a phenomenon of minimalizing and, and downsizing and just saying, I don't need all this space. Um, you know, for, for a small family, it works. For a single person, it works. For retirees, it works. And it's a great way to, you know, to have a place that you can call your own without having a mortgage. Yeah, do you see that tying in with what we were just talking about, you know, vans and, and teardrop trailers? Yeah. Again, the, 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 the idea of simplifying your life and not just having all this baggage around you, you know? That's really what it's about. It's really about that, that simple living aspect and just saying, you know what, I don't need all that stuff. I don't need all that space. I don't need all that expense. So just downsize a little bit. And, you know, if, if tiny house to you means 1,200 square feet, great. You know, from call it 4,000 down to 1,200, that's great. That's tiny for you. So it really comes down to the individual's, um, you know, needs and, and how they can comfortably live. Can you move them around? Yeah, the ones on trailers, uh, you certainly can. You know, one of our um, one of the folks that worked for me in the tiny house uh, jamboree in the past couple of years, she, in the summers, she and her husband are in the Dallas area, and then in the winters, they're in Minnesota. So they move it twice a year. They tow it back and forth. And they, I'm sorry, wait, in the winter, they're in Dallas, and the summer, they're in Minnesota. Uh -huh. um, so they move it back and forth twice a year. So the outside experience, uh July 13th and 14th here in Chicago at McCormick Place Lakeside Center. So uh, maybe the last question here. If someone's coming and, and there's some really hot trends, give me two or three things that the, the antenna should be up for. Definitely hit our climbing wall. That'll be, that'll be amazing. We've got a great group of folks there to get you started. If you've never climbed, we want to create a really open, friendly environment to try something that you haven't tried. 
Uh, I also would put on the radar a couple of our guests that are on the main stage. Actually, both are Chicago natives. Uh, Nate Flewellen, he will speak on Saturday about 11.30. Nate grew up on the south side and now hosts a web series called Worldwide Nate, where he travels the world. He is actually going to do about 15 minutes on stage, and then we'll be bringing up a couple of the kids from some of our charity programs that take the inner city kids out into the wilderness, you know, hiking and camping, and he'll do a little panel with what those programs meant to him. And then the other on Sunday would be Kelly Edwards, another Chicago native who is the host of Travel Channel's Mysterious Islands and a pilot. So super excited to hear those two on stage and hear the stories they have to tell. Well, thanks so much for joining us on a, a Friday night. Uh, John Fontaine, Director of Consumer Launch for Reed Expo- Exhibitions, and it's the Outside Experience coming to Chicago on July 13th and 14th. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you. Okay. And we'll, we'll be back after this on WGN. The hitless wonders turned the trick back in 1906. Shoeless Joe, please say that it ain't so. Many years were dark at the famed Comiskey Park Till Applin came with aches and pains and fouled off ten or so Talking baseball, Benura and Big Ed, Sox baseball Welcome back to Nocturnal Drone. Ro, you're going to learn something in this segment. <laughs> Every- I'm <hoping> too. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about, uh, thank you guys for all coming in, White Sox Parks, uh, Amazing Vendors. It's a bestseller by Lloyd Rutsky and Joel Levin. Lloyd, you're in the studio tonight. Thank, get up that microphone. Yeah, okay. So, vendor Lloyd Rutsky and Bob, introduce yourself. Bob Shacoin. Lloyd Rutsky. Our friend. Doug North, thanks for having me. Uh, and Abe. Abe Rappick. <laughs> thanks for joining us, Abe. No problem. You guys are all friends. So, we had we did a segment, uh, when your, Lloyd, when your um, Wrigley Field book came out. That's correct. So, talk. Talk about how this came out. Was this always planned? Uh, you were going to do two together? Uh, well, the original plan was uh, that we had uh, we were going to have one book with both teams, uh-huh. their pictures, but the uh, publisher somehow thought that, uh, well, maybe the Cubs were a little more popular at the time. Uh, I don't know where they got this crazy idea. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, and since I had so many pictures, <clears throat> and I also thought that the Sox fans really don't want anything with Cubs to do with it, and most Cub fans are pretty have the same thought. So we get two books. If if the first one's successful, and the first one was successful, so this year we've got White Sox Parks Amazing Vendors, me and Joel Levin, and that's uh, I came out uh, two weeks ago, and we're pretty excited about it. Arcadia Publishing. Yes. dot com is how people can find them. Uh-huh. Um, for people who are, are haven't heard the story before, how'd you find the pictures? How many pictures are in the book? I found them. I found them because I took them. All of them. All well, of them. Um, like 90%. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I started taking pictures in about 1971. I was going to Columbia College, and I got a Nikon camera for to, to take professional-type pictures at the time. And I started taking pictures. And when I, I had started working at the ballpark in 1965, and I by 1970, I was thinking, well, I probably wouldn't be vending much longer or whatever, but I still wanted to take pictures of people so I would remember them, you know, 5, 10 years, 15 years, and, and I started, you know, taking pictures of my friends was one thing, but then I started taking pictures of, pe- of guys I didn't know, stand workers, the, the slight ushers, and what, what they thought I was pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, what did, yeah, what did people say? Well, did you know, they, why you, t- you called me a screwball, you know, what did, <laughs> what did you, we, you, 
why do you want my picture? And then I, because I would, you know, get their picture and I would get their name too, as most in 90% of the cases. And, uh, you know, just hopefully that we would uh, have something to remember them. And they thought I was nuts, but like 10 years later, people started, you know, I would bring these, I was still working and I'm still working now 55 years later. Yeah. Before identity theft, they thought you were the first guy doing it. (laughs) And uh, so. Anyway, the uh, and then that ten years later, people started looking at these pictures, and there's you know somebody, hey, this guy is no longer around, and, and that that lady is not is gone, and these parts of the ballpark is it's no longer there. There's buildings across the street and things like that. There's different, so they were pretty uh, you know very happy that I taken these pictures. Of course, now 50, 50 years later, it's you know they're classics. Uh, when did you get the idea to make it into a book? Well, uh, actually, my idea wasn't I'd always wanted to do something with my pictures but I didn't really I was you know kind of never putting anything together but uh, my friend Joel Levin who had been he hasn't been for like 40 years but he he vended before me and uh, he had an idea to write a, a book about it and but he needed you know pictures and he knew that I'd taken a lot of pictures including a couple of him and his brothers and his one brother and uh, he approached uh, you know he's trying to find a publisher and he found Arcadia Publishers and he thought you know they were intrigued by the idea and uh, then we got to meet with them and it took about a year or two of negotiations and finally they agreed you know we'll we'll do it you know let's see what they saw all the pictures I had I had like a thousand at least and you know like like 950 of them were real good and what did you use? What type of equipment? A Nikon camera, mostly. And then other people had cameras, too. This guy, Mike Gold, and a few others. And to this book, uh, Dave Levinson, who's a vendor yeah. now, he's he contributed a few pictures. But uh, most of them are mine. And, and um, you know, it transcends. It's not a vanity project. Because when you look at this, and same thing with the Cubs book, I mean, it, it just takes anybody who's a baseball fan back into the stands, and it brings back, you know, all, all kinds of memories and stuff. Have, have you? Did you get that response with the with the Wrigley Field one? Have you had that with this one? Oh yeah, everyone has seen it. Really seems to like it a lot, and they just so so happy that uh, these guys are, you know. Some of these pictures, I really didn't think, you know, big deal, you know, there's somebody. But then, but there's always somebody who knew that person. And they're seeing, you know, somebody's mother. This was, the, oh, that's my mother. And uh, that's my uncle. And uh, so. Like, for instance, I had forgotten about, uh, I put this in yellow, Lou the Shoeshine Man's Place at Old Comiskey. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd forgotten right. about that until I saw it in your book. Yeah, yeah. You but, talk about that. Do you guys remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You would see, I think there was at least two of them. But maybe he was yeah. the only one. You tip. got extra spit if you had wing tips. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, they did. They had a, a shoeshine guy. Yeah. 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 He yeah. had a chair. He had his little box. And yeah. then yeah. his shoes took over. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a picture of him on, uh, where is it? Uh, and they're doing stuff like that again now. Like in, in Brooklyn, they put in a barbershop <laughs> where, uh, you know, where the Nets now play and stuff like that. There's so. a picture of uh, With a quartet. <laughs> Bob, when did you start, uh, when did you start vending? You know... I started vending. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the newly elected president. I don't like to really think how many years it was, but that makes me a whippersnapper next to these guys. Yeah. <laughs> I've only got 42 years in, I think, and they've got many more than that. Uh, and where did you start at? Which, which uh, arena? White Sox. White Sox, was, yeah. Uh, beer was uh, 80 cents back then, but you only got 12 ounces. So you're just paying $9.20 for the extra four ounces because they now sell 16 ounces. 
Bob, Bob wants to talk about being a whippersnapper. I've, I'm a whippersnapper at 24 years. Yeah. I, I started at, at Cubs in, in 1996, and I was at White Sox from 2000 to 2012. So hearing these stories, um, you know, over the years really gave me an idea of what I had missed out. In 24 years, there's still a lot of history before me. I'm in the middle of the right. path when it comes to the world of the vendors. I'm glad Lloyd put out two books because for this for this type of, of city, we need two books. There's two teams and we're very divided in terms of our allegiances and people remember specifically one side of town versus the other side of town and that hits that memory from wherever anybody else happened to be at that game in that seat that's why i wanted you on the on the panel what did you learn when you started with these guys how you were 16 when you started? I was si- yeah i was 16 when i started well i, I what was this what did this how did you look at this generation loud yeah intrusive <laughs> yeah. aggressive and at 16 years old, I didn't know what to say other than, you know, I'm going to stay out of the way and, and pay attention to the world around me. And maybe I'll learn something um, because ultimately, you know, we're there to make money. Um, but in order to make money, we have to sell things. We have to connect with people. So how do you do that best? So I had to take a look around at, at uh, you know, my colleagues and see what they've been doing for years. And then I, I showed up. Is there a, a certain? I guess everybody has a different style, you know. Um, is there a shtick? I mean, some people scream. There's that one guy used oh, to. Oh yeah, say, there's a lot of people who scream. I don't like that. There are characters. Yeah. There are characters. I think they're like it's like a Crayola crayon box. Uh-huh. Every vendor is very, very, very different, and you have to you have to figure out how you connect with the ballpark and the fans and and what you feel comfortable doing because uh, you know uh, Lloyd, Bob, and Abe, and myself, we're very different in how we vend these seats. Explain that. Each one of you talk about what your style's like. Abe? Well, I I started in 73, I think. And then it sucks. I'm not even sure when I started. It was like two or three years right. later. <laughs> but um, everyone has their different style. I joke around with the yeah, people. Yeah, you're accessible. I mean, you're, you're accessible. You're friendly. Right. I mean, Doug's great with his uh, regulars. Bob yeah. gives out baseball cards to people. Yeah. Lloyd shows them the two different socks. Yeah, you know, well, stuff I crazy. Like what do you do, Lloyd? Well, I don't show him. I have different socks. <laughs> he wears shorts you didn't if notice? it's snowing. Yeah. And he has two different pairs of socks on, so it's yeah. obvious. It's like, one, that vendor is wearing shorts, and it's 35 degrees out and snowing. And not only is he wearing shorts, it's his socks don't match. So let's That's talk true. with that guy while we're having him pour us right. a beer. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you say, Lloyd, are you cold? He, he raises his fist, goes, I fight the cold. I fight the cold. Yeah, I'm about ready to <laughs> It's not cold. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's not beautiful. I think no, for I, me it's been an evolution over time. Um, it's I started when I was 16, so I sold the pop, the peanuts, the hot dogs. I've sold it all, and, and up until uh, in 2000, that's when I started getting beer. That's when I turned 21. So you know, at that point, it changed. So whatever product I had, it changed, right, because I was appealing to a different audience. That's me. And so I... I evolved over time to just connect with people. I think, you know, Dave, you, you see me most, you see me more than you see these guys. I think you can speak to that. Yeah, right. I'll Did you ever evolve into the loud, intrusive type that uh, you saw when you first started? No, I, I pretty much said I don't want to be that. I, I just, <laughs> if I'm scared of it or or if I'm just like put off by it, I'm like, I, I don't want to be that. But I, I think I think that was just me and my perception. I think within the context of the ballpark, though, they, they see us, they see other vendors as characters. I don't want to say superheroes. I mean, you guys are my superheroes but it's like man i want to talk to these guys i want to buy a beer from them because they're very very different all right we got to take a break and uh, we're going to come back and uh, talk more of uh, white Sox parks uh, amazing vendors on the eve of the 
Cub Sox. So don't go away on uh, Nocturnal Journey. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal, White Sox Parks, Amazing Vendors. We played Pablo Cruz because uh, on August 19th, 1978, I was there. Steve Miller Band, the Eagles, Pablo Cruz at Comiskey Park. Now, Doug, you were too young, but Abe, Chico, were you? what's it like to uh, vend a rock concert? Well, those, you needed your four tracks to really get all of Pablo <laughs> Cruz, didn't you? Uh, yeah, they just started the, uh, in fact, some of those rock concerts, I think, did worse damage to uh, the Comiskey Park Field than Des- Disco Demolition Night, um, because they'd have the concerts, they wouldn't really cover the field, they'd have it after rain, and it'd just be, um, but that's where they experimented with the concerts at, at uh, Comiskey, and now, of course, uh, Wrigley and the other venues have taken over. They had some great stuff, Scorpions, uh, we're talking about rock concerts at Comiskey, uh, Scorpions, Iron Maiden, Girls' School, that was on August 5th. 1982. Did you? Did you? I, you're a music guy, re- yeah. But for some reason, I just remember working the Rolling Stones there. Yeah, Rolling unless Stones. I worked other concerts. Things you won't mention, but in the, in the in but that was the new one. I'm talking about pre-91. I don't remember. Yeah. Oh, in the in the old park. Yeah, right. Yeah. Scorp- well, the old park had uh, other things. They had the Beatles, right? Yeah, they that's won. when I wrote. I wrote. Uh, you didn't work. work. No, I didn't you didn't work. work that. I, that was no, I wasn't the vendor. <laughs> it was uh, right, it but was the, we I, know vendors that actually worked with the Beatles. Beatles I could have. There was a nineteen. It's there was like a month after I started, and somebody told me that I couldn't work it, and I was stupid enough to believe him, and so I didn't. And, and I worked uh, and, uh, pro wrestling there a few was times, a, which was... August 65. Th- these people were drinking like they were going to the electric oh, yeah. chair in the morning. This oh, is yeah. Dick <laughs> the Bruiser yeah. days, Crusher days, wait, wait. Stan Hansen against Rick Martel. Are you awesome sure you fights. weren't in the ring, Abe? <laughs> and they had- I wanted to be, but um, no, they, that's when they had the yellow jackets. They didn't even know what to do because I don't think they had ever seen crazy people They were drinking so much, like they this. were doing the Vern Gagne sleeper Hold yeah. on themselves. They had uh, roller derby. Yeah. And, uh, I work roller derby. Yeah, they had I think. 50,000 people for that. And people, our, our union president said, no, they'd be like, our, our steward thought that, no, oh, they'll be like, you know, five or 6,000. But this was ni- 1972, and this was, a, it was mania. The people who were, were uh, you know, so hopped up on this every Sunday night that they've, they've pounded. But they've, uh, uh, Hop, Bill Hoppy Hop, and uh, this uh, wrestler Stan Hansen. I don't know if you remember him. He was like a big cowboy guy. He was fighting Rick Martel, like a pretty boy from Canada. But Martel was tough as nails. So they were they jumped out of the ring at the end of the match, and Hansen hits him with the cowbell, and he lassoes him, and he's dragging him by his neck to the. Uh, I think it was the White Sox dugout, and the security didn't know what to do. He, that, it's like they thought it was real. They tried to break it up, but they couldn't, and then they just disappeared down the tunnel. That was the original. And, uh, they have more cow. They both got disqualified. <laughs> Ro, I told you uh, you learned something tonight on yep. uh, on Nocturnal Journal. So, I mean, it's an obvious question, but rock and roll audiences, crowds are different than baseball crowds. Well, we found well, yeah. that yeah. for sure on Disco Demolition <laughs> yeah, right. Night because that night it was a it was not a scheduled doubleheader. It was a, it was a makeup 
the doubleheader. So normally the game the game was originally scheduled like it's uh, seven o'clock, I think, something like seven thirty at the time. So they had it's six, six o'clock, and usually for a game that wasn't scheduled, there would be like three thousand people. By six o'clock that night, the place was full. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they were full. Like ninety percent of the people were not. The White Sox fans. <laughs> yeah, right. they, they were all these people who got in with a disco record for seventy-five, uh, eighty-nine cents, right? Or Eighty-seven cents, and 90, and yeah. you are you knew right away this was going to be. Ins- it was insane. It was like I, a mass pass out of beer, or people would just surround you when you would take your load out, and they could kill you or they could take. W- you what were you vending that night? I was selling beer. And what oh, kind of beer do you remember? Oh, uh, Falstaff, I Falstaff, think. No, or or. Uh, it was glass bottles or paper cups? No, yeah. was, Good question. Yeah. Oh, no. Glass have, bottles, you had to pour them. Don't, yeah. It was 12 yeah, it was ounce cans. cans. No, it was cans. Man. Oh, it was cans? Can, yeah. Candemonium. 79 it was. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> it was 79? What section were you in, like? Oh, I was on the third base side. Third base side. Was base the beer side. cold or was it oh, sort of? Yeah, it was pretty cold. It, but did it, it matter? They, they wouldn't have mattered. They wouldn't have mattered. What music, Lloyd, what, what music were you listening to in uh, 1970? Was it 78 or 79? I wrote that. 79. 79, That's yeah. when I was almost, born. It's yeah. almost the 40th anniversary. Yeah, right. Yeah. Next week. July 12th. Yes. Well, Dave, I used to take the train down there at the time. Yeah. And uh, I knew something was wrong that night. I was on the L going downtown, and everyone was on. All these young kids are wearing these black T-shirts, Disco Sucks, yeah. and Steve Daw. Yeah. I go, what's going on? And they said, there's a thing. I didn't even know. I, I think did, I may have heard it. I didn't. I mean, I was still listening. To it was crazy. Was yeah, what were you listening to? I was. No, I was still listening. Well, the Bee Gees were still uh, doing hits. And Did uh, you like the Bee Gees? Oh, I love the Bee Gees. Oh, okay. And, uh, to me, disco was just rock and roll with a different form. Yeah, was, right. I didn't understand why they were so upset, but it was more like the lifestyle of the disco people. And uh, Well, I was there. I told people it was a hot night. It was a, it was, it was kind of a sticky hot, night, yeah. kind of night on like tonight. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. We would have done like 50 cases. Uh, and I mean, I sold like 25 cases in the first game. I took, uh, my record was Do You Think I'm Sexy by oh. Rod Stewart. Oh, yeah, I, I, I could, hated that record. <laughs> Oh, I like, oh, that was a good song. Did you like that one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, uh, yeah. I thought it was the really? worst song. Oh, no, it was a good hit. Everybody yeah. charged the field that night except yeah. for Lloyd. Yeah. Lloyd stood up and applauded. <laughs> well, I, I was uh, just, I was pretty sick seeing my park, you know, yeah. on fire. You know, people were on the field lighting fires. Oh, yeah. We, when, yeah. We did, when we did the book, Chico, you're in the book. When we did the book, everybody looked back at it with, like, a smile and a fond remembrance except for Roger Bossard. Oh, yeah. And well, Bossard said, well, you know, he goes, how would you like if somebody came into your house and turned over all your furniture? Bill <laughs> Beck didn't like it yeah, right. much either. Yeah. Uh, yeah. can't please all the people all the time. Yeah. He went on the field and he was yelling, go back to your seats, go back to your seats. Yeah, these <laughs> kids were climbing up yeah. over the wall to get in. Yeah. I, after a while, I wanted to leave. Because I knew I had a feeling something bad was going to happen. They locked I don't the door be part of, of, it. The, of the 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 entranceways. They bolted the door. People are banging on the yeah. door <laughs> by like seven o'clock, to, to, trying to beat the way to get in. Because there was my like fifty thousand people there already, and would have had seventy or eighty thousand if yeah. they let them in, and they were just stormed over the gates. Chico, you worked at. Where were you at again? What section? What were you selling? I was uh, in the upper deck, and actually, when they cut off beer, I got deputized by some security guy. <laughs> so, so he said, "Hold, hold this section here. Hold them. Hold them from going on it." And then he went away. And after three minutes, I thought it was. It's nice having a career as a deputy for three minutes. I think <laughs> kind of like being a substitute teacher. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. Then the yeah. horsemen rode in. You know, policemen on horseback and. Uh, 
got on the field and uh they, when did we find out the second game was canceled oh, during night, the first that, game or that, that night i i knew they would have to well it was canceled we immediately canceled. and then we, we all checked out and ran home i think ran i don't home. think anyone really stuck around did ran you home. stick around ran home. what do you mean to, i mean i just what? wanted to get out I of there i went out to dinner i went out to no dinner. but i'm yeah. saying you didn't stick around to watch it you went hey, Lloyd, you went you went well, to faces Lloyd. crazy <laughs> people they threw out the cops it took them a while to throw them out Half hour after yeah. a riot, you're hungry. You got to eat. They drove them out, and they yeah, it was insane. And they called you know, those weren't baseball White Sox fans. No, no, it was no. like and insane. The Sox weren't doing that great. There, they weren't. No, no, no. It was, uh, Lloyd, you're a Sox fan. Oh yes. How that how how that start? Well, I'm born in the South Side. My father was a Sox fan. He started taking me to the ballpark when I was you know, four or five, and he listened to the games on the radio all the time, and. Uh, Came a White Sox fan, American League fan. Uh, I mean, most Sox fans like hate the Yankees, but no. I would hate them during the season. But when they came to the World Series and the White Sox weren't there, I would always root for my league to ruin. And the Yankees, you know, did pretty good. So, what your what your father do? What your parents do? Oh, my father was uh, he had a various jobs. He was the final job was uh, a piano tuner, but before that, he was uh, in the warehousing business with uh, other people. You know, he worked. He worked the hard. He was the hardest working guy I ever knew. So and and what neighborhood did you grow up? Oh, in, in the south side, southeast, 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 southeast side. side. Yeah, mm-hmm. I went to graduated from Bowen High School. I, I went to Hirsch and also South Shore. First, uh, my first year and second year, and then I, we moved and I went to Bowen. So uh, yeah, and we then we moved to the Glenview in 1969 when I was 21. Robert, you, you're a Sox fan, aren't you? Or not? Yes, grew up on the south side. Also, uh, several miles west of where Lloyd grew up uh, in what they call the Auburn area yeah. of Chicago. It was St. Flower Parish. It was better known as back then. Or, or uh, Little Flower Parish. Doug? Cubs? I'm a Cubs fan. Die hard. Um, I came home after school and had my snack and popped on WGN. And I caught the Cubs uh, bottom of the 6th. Uh, top of the seventh and Harry Carey sang the stretch and you know that's history for me I always came home and day baseball was on and and that's how I fell in love with the Cubs hey we got a break real quick Cubs Sox your Cubs aren't you Cubs yeah of course but I well I'm not a hater I I want the Sox to do well it's not like Wrigley Field where they could just draw full houses automatically but that's another topic (laughs) we'll interrogate you after break (laughs) okay we're gonna take a break thanks a lot we're gonna talk more about uh, the book White Sox Park Amazing Vendors on WGN. The Chicago White Sox, it's more than a ball game. Come play with us. <laughs> yeah, that's what I like. Welcome back to uh, Nocturnal Journal. We're talking the book, White Sox Park's Amazing Vendors by Lloyd Rutsky and Joel Levin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Thank Lloyd. Um, for We heard there, Nana Hey Hey with Nancy. Um, talk about the difference between uh, your clientele at, on the north side and the south side. Uh, north side's a little more... Uh Upscale, maybe uh, more professional uh, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs. Uh, but uh, White Sox is a, it's a hardy crew, and uh, I think years ago was much more the bigger difference because uh, the, it was the neighborhood and uh, maybe a working class 
fans uh, compared to the Wrigley, but I don't know. Uh, they they both seem draw a lot of you know good people. You know. Bob, well, the pitch is a little different at uh, Wrigley. You say something like. Um, Gentlemen and ladies, my fine fellow citizens, might I interest you in some refreshing libations? Whereas at Sox, it's more like, you guys want a couple more brewskis? <laughs> Have you, do you still tend to uh, uh, work at uh, Wrigley? No, uh, age got to me, gave that up a yeah. few years ago. What about the South Side? So, I, I still work at Wrigley. It's the, so the South Oh, the Sox you don't do. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Doug, you don't do the South Side. I did the South Side from... 2000 to 2012. I just remember it was more of a more of a challenging then than it than Wrigley Field because I feel like on the South Side, you know, as Lloyd said, it, it's a working class, right? Uh, a working class group of people, right? And so they're thinking a lot about a lot more things financial than anything else. Where on the North Side, um, they're paying they're, they're whatever the experience is, they're paying for it. and They're going to make sure that they have a have a good time. And money doesn't seem to be a, an object a lot of times. It doesn't. I think money's more an object on the south side. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I respect, and you got to respect that on, on both sides of town. But it's a hard, it, in, in my opinion, it's a harder vent on the south side than it is on the north side. Yeah, Abe. Well, Cub fans have always been. It seems like it's a different class than at Sox Park. But uh, hey, I got a lot of. I'm a Cub fan, but I have a lot of friends at Sox Park. I used to joke around and say when I went to work at Cubs, I was like at a normal stadium. And when I went to work at Old Comiskey, it was like an ulterior universe, something totally different, which it is still today. It's 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 a very different clientele of people, but it's fun at both parks. They're it's nice. not as you know. I, I would tell people when we were doing the disco book. I mean, the Old Comiskey that place was pretty. That was pretty wide. Yeah. Open. Uh, okay. I mean, I, I, my first game was '65 Sox Yankees. That was the first major league game I ever saw. And I was 10 years old, man. I just these these guys, people walking around with little pints of Jack Daniels and stuff. Like, my goodness, it was it was the Wild West. There, there. were fights right. almost yeah. every night. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, that was guaranteed, and uh, you you would sell whole cases to groups and there wasn't as much of a definitely not alcohol responsible uh, selling at the time because people didn't wasn't in the thinking of the public at the time and you know we would sell after the game even to the fans and as they're leaving we were you know, selling cold can for the park for the cold can for the road when which is you know, pretty dangerous stuff but that we nobody thought that like that well, back, back then for years no, they didn't think it, like it that. Was, yeah, it was not responsible at all, but uh, that's people just got there and they just started drinking. And they and uh, now and they, uh, they drink in the parking lots and they come in and they're yeah, still right. drinking. And at Wrigley, they drink in the bars and they come in, but not, not to the extent that they did in 30, 40 years ago. Did you guys ever get in the middle of anything? Oh, well, one time, uh, well, back at Wrigley, uh, I was, uh, it was back before they, they had many concessions uh, stands and they didn't even have a, a commissary for the f first base side so uh, i was taking my we all got our cases from the third base side and i was running over to the first base side trying to take care of all these people who weren't seeing a beer man and i was getting there and then people were uh would line up around me and uh, and the so after like an inning or two the fans behind me said they were they were getting pretty uh upset that I was 
the people were coming over and blocking their view, and I was trying to get the people to come over, sit down, sit down. But they finally, these guys couldn't take it, and they just jumped on top of me and well. tried to rip my case right off my my head. Uh, and luckily, the fans who were getting the beer, they took care of them. How does that work of uh, insurance and stuff? Are you guys covered by the union, or what happened? Uh, like if something have, happens to you, we have a union. Yeah, yeah. if you're covered by an accident or in you know an incident like that, you're attacked by fans. Certainly, you could. Uh, there's uh, you have rights and things like that. But other than that, uh, where we get, we don't get any salary. We don't get any uh, sick days. We don't get any health insurance. Uh, health insurance. We yeah. get, so we just you come and you make what you can and uh, you make it by the hustle. Really. Yeah, by right. the, it's consult yeah. commission. You yeah, know, right. hustle on no, your personal shtick. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. If you well, can, all you guys got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing for you guys. Have you ever gotten in the middle of a of a dust up? And at the old, the, go on, Bob. In the Bill Vec days, I would sometimes try to, being the responsible citizen, try to break up fights. Uh, and the last one I broke up, I got slugged at the same time by the two combatants. Fortunately, they were about three sheets to the wind, so I didn't have a jaw broken. But I thought, that's, my, that's the end of my trying to break these up. But now I'll just step back and watch what happens. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's you know, to... I, I, it's never gotten to that point for me. I think at, at, at this point in time, it's so expensive for people to get to that point yeah, that that doesn't happen. They get they get pretty obnoxious at times, but it's to my I, I've diffused a lot of things. I've diffused it, and and it's to my benefit to diffuse it because it's going to come back on me. So why are they behaving that way? Well, they're overserved. If they're overserved, who who served them then? And on top of that, I don't want the people that that I serve and that's around all that to experience that because you know in this day and age, you've got kids, right. you've got people that are up there in age and nobody wants to experience that so more times than not it's to my best interest to diffuse it and when you say diffuse it what do you do um i i just basically i basically say to them i say hey he didn't mean it we're just joking around um you know is everything okay that type of thing right just kind of say hey what's your name you know and once you say hey what's your name how you doing you know are you a cubs fan you kind of divert their attention from from the issue I uh, I know you. So uh, does your background as a public school teacher help you deal with some of these Cub fans? Absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. Vending uh, vending in the seats at Wrigley is isn't that different from teaching in yeah. the Chicago public schools, right? It, it's about it's like it's it's all about personal engagement, right? You, hey, why are you doing this? Hey, um, you know, are you having a good time? You know, or if you if they came if it's a buddy system, like hey man, are you gonna let your buddy you know get sick? Are you gonna let your buddy throw you guys out of the Stadium. It's very smart. You know, how much did you pay for this ticket? Is it worth? You know, is it yeah. worth getting thrown out of a ballpark? You know, that type of thing. You start using logic, and I know baseball logic, good times. Like, there's no place for logic. I'm having a good time. Leave me alone. But in that moment, you use logic, and it it stop. It, it pauses them for a minute. And you know, at, at times, I've had to run down the stairs and notify you know the ushers or security. Say, hey, things are about to happen there. You need to get there now. And that stuff still happens. Yeah. I think I, I think I want Doug negotiating with Iran and North Korea. <laughs> so do I. Yeah, it's very good. Abe. I think it boils down a lot with Lloyd was saying. Back then, there was no real alcohol awareness like there is today. And it just seemed, especially at night games, Friday night games at Sox Park, the Cubs didn't even have night games yet, the old Sox Park, you'd get groups of people from a bar in buses like 60 or 100 yeah, people yeah. so you'd walk yeah. up an aisle which is unheard of nowadays and have a guy go pour me 40 and he wasn't kidding you'd have to sell yours and if you didn't have two cases say wait for me i'll be right back and you'd run down 
Those days are over with. They can't drink as much. The cutoff is like in the seventh inning after the seventh of both parks, basically. A Cubs is a little longer. I've seen the Cubs go longer, yeah. But, no, the days of... uh, I don't even know if the parks allow these bar groups to come in anymore. I never. Well, seen there's just them so anymore. many price points these days. People yeah. are spending yeah. their money on other things. Where back in the day, it was like you have old style or something else, and and a hot dog, and that's it. Yeah, the only thing similar to the old Comiskey Park was the old County Stadium. You get groups yeah. of people. I mean, I you go to County Stadium nowadays, they're still tailgating three, four hours before yeah, the game, right. but it's a little different. This is great stuff. Uh, we got to take a break, and we're going to come back and uh, talk more about White Sox Park's uh, amazing vendors on WGN. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN, and uh, it's a fantastic book, um, White Sox Park's Amazing Vendors. Lloyd Rutzke, you're in the studio. How can people find the book? You get it uh, at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, or from the publisher Arcadia, and maybe soon you get it at White Sox Park. That would be a good idea. Yeah, I think that, that we're in negotiations with the bosses, and the, they, they've seen it, and they, the, I think maybe next time home stand it might be available at the gift shop there. Maybe we'll get to, maybe we'll get Disco Demolition in there, and they can do two <laughs> for one, <laughs> now that they're embracing Disco Demolition. Yeah. Um, trying to plug all my books in one show. Uh, uh, a month early. They, yeah. they went with it a month early. Um, so, Doug North, you're here. We're talking about, I want to talk about life after vending. So, Doug, I know you teach. So, talk about what you, you know, some I love the picture. I'm, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name right, the, 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 with Harry Carey. Paul Smolson? Yeah. And he became a dental surgeon? Yes, that's correct. So talk yeah. about all you guys. What happens you know, when you get out of this, when you don't want to do it uh, anymore? I can't tell you. What yeah. <laughs> you, you've I done 8,000, 8, over 8,000 games. Right, between ballparks. Uh, I probably have worked more baseball games in, in the seats than any person who's ever lived. I you think. know what? You I, know what we should do? Yeah. I was just up this week. I went to the Bobblehead Hall of Fame. Yeah. There should be a Vendors Hall of Fame. Well, there could be. <laughs> we, well, we talk about yeah. that. In the last section is the legends. Yeah, we right. The legends and uh, uh, you know, love vending and uh, other things. Uh, we have like Harry Carey's and the legends and Dick Allen and Ozzy Gann. Uh, but mostly the legends of vending that are in there uh, who we everyone remembers uh, or should remember. So Paul went on to be a dental surgeon. Yes, and there's several others. Yeah, well, there's one guy named uh, John, John, w, John W. Rogers Jr. He's, his office is like across the street here at the AN Center, uh, and he started uh, Ariel Investments, and uh, he was a Coke vendor. In, uh, he, well, he first met him when I was selling pizza to him when he was 10. And uh, later he became a vendor, like he's like 10 years younger than me. And somehow he met some guy named Barack Obama and uh, became his economic advisor. And uh, right across the streets where uh, uh, Obama gave his, you know, yes, we can yeah. acceptance speech. And his headquarters were in Rogers' office at the uh, uh, Aerial Investments here. And uh, across the street. Doug North and Mike Morosky from our studio audience. We know we had a stripper, a male stripper in our <laughs> section, right? What was his name? He yeah. made Mark, Goodman. Mark Goodman. Mark Goodman. Wow. Yeah. yeah. He, well, everyone's got to hustle for a few extra yeah. bucks, but I won't do that. Yeah. I'll yeah. make the woman run out. <laughs> I think um, 
I, I think vending is one of those uh, unique platforms or opportunities for people to, like I said, I started when I was 16. I, I wanted to work at Wrigley Field, be close to the Cubs. Um, but, you know, as I as anybody grows up, you try to figure out what is it that you want to do with your life. I think it's great with the guys sitting around me. It's like, you know, they were they are working class men. They, they did um, start this and thought, this is a career. This is what I'm going to do, right? And unfortunately, things have evolved and changed. And I know a lot of people have said, well, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. My body aches. Yeah. I, I just feel like that there's something more that I'm supposed to do. And so people reach a certain platform to go in and, and do it. Right, they they reach a certain they reach a certain point where they're like, I'm re- I'm done, I'm ready to move on. And some people are done for good. They're they're this is something that they did in the past, and it's something they can talk about. Others like myself, who who is a teacher or you know an accountant or a city worker of some sort, right? It's something that's on the side, right? It, it's a nice thing to still be connected to Wrigley Field and all that Wrigley Field is. And that's what you do, Bob. You're an accountant still. Uh, count beans by day, beers by night. <laughs> <laughs> but for all you guys, I mean, it's 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 people skills. You got to have people skills to do what you do. Well, to be certainly. good at what you do. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly you have to be interact with the fans. Uh, I ask everybody, well, I ask almost everybody for their ID, you know, if they want a beer. And they're, most of the time, you know, the 90% of them are so flattered because, you know, they're 40, 50 years old. Yeah. And you do find out their names and you get to talk to them and you see their ID and see what they're, you're, where they're born, where they're from. And you, you, you make some uh, contact, you know, uh, and you strike up a conversation, you know, because you have, you know, at Wrigley, you still have to pour the beer. It's, I think, the only park left in the country where the, for ball games, that you still have to pour the beer. I did not know that. Yeah, I believe that everywhere else they give out the beer, the cans. But at Wrigley, so... Why, 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 got, why is that? Well, I don't Wrigley, Try, I think... Go on. I think at Wrigley, they, they, they said that they were really close to letting us give out the beer there, too, but then I think there was a couple instances of... Uh, I think in one city where people threw the cans at on the field, so they said, "No, we'll we'll stick with this." But so we, you know, in the, in the ten seconds or twenty seconds while you're pouring the beer, you have time to talk something. You know, that's very fair. And uh, there's no t- other guys are all businesslike, and they don't have as much rapport, you know, personal, you know, charisma with the fans. But if you you spot them and talk to them, and you'll make something, they'll make they'll you'll rem- they'll remember you. And buy from me again. We're um, we're on radio, and uh, your your uncle Mike North, mm-hmm. radio guy, yeah, um, got you kind of suggested this. He was a vendor at one time. Where I'm going with this, Mark Carmen, WGN's own Mark Carmen, that's vendor. right. Yeah, Barry Ro- Barry Rosner, Barry Rosner a yeah. vendor. I'm probably missing somebody, but why are all these vendors? David Kaplan. Kaplan's a vendor. Was a vendor. Was a vendor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were all vendors, and they got in radio. Right. <laughs> I'm going to be a radio guy that gets into vending. vending yeah, we got a job line. Yeah. Yeah, right. They're do bringing it. back yeah. taffy apples. I could, I'll sell cotton candy. <laughs> and taffy apples. Yeah, right. But why is that? Is that, is that, is that a coincidence? Or is, again, is it people I, I skills? Th- I, I think it's, it's, you know, uh, it's an opportunity to make good money in a short amount of time. It's very unique. You, know, you don't keep a schedule. You show up when you want to show up. Right. And and there's no job really like that. And, you know, it's either you're here to make you're either here to make money or you're here to sell beer. That's what I say. And if you're here to make money, you're going to connect with fans. People like a connection. It's baseball. Right. They connect with baseball for one reason or another. And if you connect with the person, they're going to buy from you. Right, they're gonna like you. They're gonna want to buy from you. If you're just there to just be there and make money, right? Um, it, it's a cold transaction, right? Mm-hmm. I just think things are different when there's a human touch to it. There's a human element, a little extra time, 
goes a long way. And you have a radio background. I do. CB, a producer at The Score? I was a producer at The Score. I was a producer at uh, the Kevin Matthews Show on 94.7 The Zone. I was in locker rooms interviewing and stuff, um, that sort of thing. And and I was inspired by by my uncle to do that. And um, I just realized, you know, I can't, I can't keep the lifestyle up. I can't keep that up. And I transitioned into teaching. Yeah. But I didn't know. I know a little bit about. I know a lot about you, but I didn't know you did underground radio, eighty-eight point one FM. What that was, that was like? my bread and butter. What'd Man, you do? I, I Wait, the, what'd you What'd you play? I had I had whatever they told me to play. You're I, too I, young for like Jethro Tull and stuff like that. No, I didn't have that type of show. It was more or less like anything from like the mid '80s to um, like the late '90s. And then I had a sports show. I had a did variety really a show. show. I had yeah. I had a music show. I did editing. I did all that. That was fun, you know. And I wrote for uh, the Columbia College newspaper a little bit as well. It was a lot of fun. It was my show. I kind of like like you. Just you know, this is what I'm good at this is what I'm gonna do and I went and did it and um, you know it, it, people responded well to it and it was a lot of fun for me fond memories you know what Doug there's no money in radio. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. I'll be honest with you. That's why I pretty much yeah. left because I wasn't going to go Is to that Boise. Why you never tipped me. <laughs> okay. I, I didn't want to go to Boise, Idaho. You know, I, I love Boise, Idaho, but I didn't want to go to Boise, Idaho to their you know triple yeah, right. single A affiliate to you know break in there and then get shipped to you know wherever Oklahoma. It's right? like a baseball player, like a minor league ball player. Pretty yeah, much. Right. Or station train changes formats and like see you later. Yeah. Right. right. So I mean. I love I loved radio. I love connecting with people there. Um, it was a lot of fun, but I, I realized that at some point in time, you know, it's not gonna it's not gonna treat me as I'm treating it. You know, I'm yeah. not gonna it's gonna be gone. And I'm like, what am I going to do now? Yeah. What a great you know. I, I said this. I don't know if I can articulate it any better. It's just when I go through this book, it just takes me. You know, I, this book wouldn't resonate with me. It was like the cell or anything. But it's old Comiskey. Are they, are they all of old Comiskey? No, no. There's I, a, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm, from, uh, there's a picture of Mark Carmen. Uh, at the, and, at the and, new whatever they call it. There's a few. Yeah, other, yeah there's a few from uh, from the new Comiskey Park. Yeah. But yeah. but what works for me? I, mean, I saw Cindy in here, and it just it just takes you yeah. right into the oh, ballpark. Right. As you went back, Lloyd, as you went back and looked at these and put this book together, um, what went through your mind? And was there a couple pictures that came out to you? I know we've lost some vendors. Just emotionally, what it was like to put this together when you saw people from your past. Well, uh, as as uh, I look through it now, there there are just so many guys that uh, I had so much uh, part of my life with, you know, that I had fun with, that they taught me how to, you know, to work and how to live, and and they, you know, they came to my wedding, and the end of the book, there's a picture from my wedding, Abe was in there, and uh, so it's just all of, uh, you know, and I met my wife at the ballpark. Yeah, how'd that, I was going to ask you that. Well, how, it was a, She was a season ticket holder, yeah, I know that, that. that's right, and well... Turned out my brother had met her in in um, Jamaica, and uh, he, <laughs> really, yeah, that was a very in a one in a hundred million chance that. Uh, but he met her on an elevator, and she found out they're both from Chicago, and uh, then they uh, started connecting each other. It turned out at the time I was engaged to someone else, but wow. that uh, I didn't know he was. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but then I, I broke that my ended, and so then my brother brought up that he'd met this girl who happens to be a. Not only a, a, a baseball fan, she's a season ticket holder at White Sox Park. So this was, uh, you know, so I, meet, he gave me her number and I called her up and we agreed to meet at the Sox Park. So I didn't actually just bump into her at Sox Park. And actually I was working downstairs and her seats were upstairs with her father and her brother. But, uh, you know, we met there and then she also loved movies like I did. And 
just you know, one year later, we got married pretty much. That upper right field at uh, at Comiskey. That's uh, that's where my dad took me, and that's also where I sat for disco demolition. You know, that's just that upper right field deck up there. In the upper left field, that's where my uncle Mike he got me into vending with my brother, and he had a stand in the upper deck in left field. He was uh, vending in the fifties. We didn't mention one thing about the old Sox Park that steak stand. You see the flames coming up, and they throw a little ribeye on there. They were delicious. <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you guys for coming down on a, on a holiday weekend. It's it's a, it's, it's a great segment. Yeah, it's uh, our really, pleasure. really. Uh, Lloyd, just give us the details on how people can find the book. Well, once again, you can get it from Amazon or from uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, a lot of Barnes & Nobles have it, or you can order it from them, and or from the Arcady Publishing, uh, and maybe some other stores. There are other stores that probably have it, too. Uh, I know that my friend Cindy had the Rigby oh. book and her store in, in uh, Evanston, and yeah. us Tailgate. So... Yeah. Uh, I, other places have it that I don't even know about. They don't tell me everywhere it goes. Right. I'm just a writer. <laughs> okay, thanks, you guys. Uh, thanks for listening tonight. And you know what? We'll be back tomorrow night with uh, with uh, A.J. Croce, Jim Croce's son. So wow. uh, listen in on that on uh, WGN.